<laughs> we'll see where this goes, all right. Who, who in this room, and, and you know, admit it if you want to, if, if you don't admit this, then this is not true about you, but if you will, then it is. Who likes to be the center of attention? Who likes to be the center of, you know, likes it when everybody kind of pays attention to you, right? You like that? You like to be the center of attention? Oh, shocking. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Guess who was the center of attention? <laughs> um, who likes to be... Let's say it a different way. Who likes to be the center of attention and get completely embarrassed in the process to make an absolute fool of yourself? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not saying who does that. I'm saying who <laughs> likes that. <laughs> you keep waving your hand, you're going to uh, get some sponsors. Um, how many of you in some type of public way has just completely looked like an idiot? Yeah, 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 right? I mean, it just happens, right? I, I, yeah, no, I'm, my hands are in my pockets tightly. Um, my hands aren't raised because I'm about ready to tell you a couple stories. Um, when I was, I, I don't know, let's say I was 13 or 14, um, there, there was a sports banquet for school, middle school or high school, whatever it was, and sports banquet, so we got like the VFW, right? They're always, they're always at the VFW. And so there's a VFW or Knights of Columbus or some type of hall, and, and we're there. And so it was my job, as it, my parents were up, like, getting all the chicken for everybody before they gave out the awards, we're having dinner. It's my job to go get the tray of, yeah, you guessed it, drinks. And I'm right at that age where I'm super coordinated, and I'm not growing fast, right? And so I don't have any, so here I am with a tray full of, like, Cokes, right? And they're, they're not lids. They're just, like, plastic cups with ice and Coke and wide open, right? So here I get it, and I turn, and, of course, I've filled them all up to the very edge, right? So I'm scared of... So I'm walking along, and, and, of course, I just don't look where I'm going, and I hit somebody's foot, or I hit a cord, or I hit something on the floor, and I just go boom. And so, of course, at, in one instant, where's everybody looking? And I'm this kid, and I'm like, Ooh, right? It's like it's that one moment where just like everybody's attention is on you. Um, I, I like to be the center of attention. I don't like to be the center of that kind of attention. Um, when we were on vacation uh, growing up, I was, we were going up to Whitehall, Michigan, and there's a white lake there. It's a little lake just off of Lake Michigan and nice sort of cottages. And we'd go every summer at the end of the summer, right before school started, stay there for a week. And we go fishing, do different stuff. And so one year we decided to rent a little boat and we brought up a little motor, just so it didn't go too fast or anything. And my dad taught me how to, you know, drive it. And it's the one where you go one way for forward, one way for reverse. And so I'm going to park it in the dock. And I went forward instead of reverse. I need to reverse to slow down, right? So I'm already going too fast, which is why I've got to go in reverse. But Steve goes forward. And I go, and it rams the dock, and the whole boat goes up in the air, and then back down. You know how you go to Six Flags, there's some boat that goes up, and you're all like, oh, we're going to flip over. And then it goes back, and you're like, oh, that was so fun. And so we come back down. Or I, I'm by myself. I come back down, and all of a sudden, there is a flood of kids from every other cottage. And they're running down to the dock because they've seen this amazing feat of moronness, right? They're running down there. 
what happened? And I'm like, oh, and my dad tells me to this day, we just talked a couple weeks ago, it just came up, and he said, you got out of that boat, and in the middle of a crowd of people, you went sprinting to the cottage and closed the door and, and hid in your bedroom, and you were so terrified because you just look like this big idiot. I've, <laughs> I've still got one more story. The most embarrassing thing that I've ever done in a public space happened yesterday. <clears throat> I've got to move the, this out of the way. So we have a baseball game yesterday in Crystal Lake. And when you go to different cities, they, you know, they, their fields are configured slightly differently, even though all the distances are supposed to be the same. They're just a little bit, they keep up the field a little bit differently. The dugouts were like almost underground. It was all weird. And, and, but all the fields now have something called breakaway bases. So when you play baseball as a kid, they don't want you to get hurt. You can slide in. If it's locked into place, you can jam your knee. You can break something. And kids, even with breakaway bases, still are getting injured. We have one kid that just broke his foot last game hitting a grand slam. I don't know how you do that, but he did. So, <clears throat> so I'm at third base. I'm the third base coach, which means I'm giving signs up to the batter, and then I'm screaming at kids to run or stop on the bases. And this kid comes into third base and slides and on my team, and he's safe, but the base comes dislodged. And then I notice on the bottom, on the, in the ground, is just a flat kind of plastic rubbery thing, and it's got these little knobs sticking up, like little mushrooms kind of, like, you know, something that's going to lock into the base. And it's come apart. So I look in the base, there's all these holes, and I look on this base thing on the ground, and there are these little knobs. So I realize I've got to line them back up. <clears throat> so I line them back up, and I kind of pat it down. The next runner comes around, he slides into third, and he knocks it loose. And I'm like, I must be really bad at putting the base back on, right? So I clean off the base, get all the dirt off of it, and I get it lined up just perfectly, and I go like this. <clears throat> and I go to jump on it. <clears throat> now, the bases in Woodstock are, are firm. They have a magnet on the bottom, and it slides off. It comes back on. But the bases, I mean, if you took your finger and tried to squish into it, it would be very hard to do. They're very firm. These bases are very squishy. It, like, it's like a trampoline. So I take a full leap, and I land with my knees bent on the base, and it just kicks my feet straight out. And I come landing butt first right on top of the base. And it's really been dry, right? And so we're on this field, and dust flies, foof, just all over the place. And both crowds and all the players are going, ooh. Because nothing's happening on the field, because the one thing that has to change between that moment and the next moment is I have to fix the base. So now I'm sitting on the base. My feet are in front of it. My hands are behind me. The dust begins to clear. I start looking around at everyone whose eyes are, of course, right on me, and I am terrified. And the first thing I yell is, is anybody videotaping this? <laughs> and then the second thing I yell is, I'm so glad my wife is not here, <laughs> because she had to be at Daniel's game, which was in Woodstock. And then for two innings... There was no comment about baseball that didn't end up talking about me and my jumping skills. <laughs> Every time the base came dislodged, the other fans of the other team are going, Coach, you got to jump on it to get it to work. <laughs> <clears throat> Telling the other fans to shut up during a baseball game, not the smartest. I didn't really tell them to shut up. 
Um, but it, it was, you know, it was at the end of the day, it was funny. And, 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 you know, talking about all these stories now, we can laugh about all of those things. But when we think about what it means to fear what people think about us and the things that we do, whether it's mistakes that we make or whether it's good things that we do, and the way people respond to us, the, the things that happen to us in life, not just the silly stuff, but those things that are truly humiliating. Not the things you're going to say, we'll laugh about that later, but the things that you say, I'm really developing enemies. The stories that I gave you are, are simple and fun, but I mean, when you think about your own life, you think about work, you think about your family life, maybe the family you grew up in or your brothers, sisters, maybe your kids, and you start thinking about how people react to you and then how you react to them, and we start to build up this thing that's called the fear of man or the, the fear of people. I'll just tell you right now, I have enough fear of man that I will never jump on third base again. I just won't because I fear the kind of response I'll get. And the coach told me, he said, guess what? He said, this isn't going to stay at the field. I'm having a meeting with the vice president of your entire little league next weekend. And this topic might come up, you know? And again, it's just a funny thing, but think about when you feel really rejected. When there's somebody has responded to something you've done, some way you've acted at work, something maybe that was okay, something maybe that was just questionable, and people start gossiping, you start hearing, like, this is what people are saying about me. Do you fear the rejection of people? Do you fear maybe that they won't give you their approval? I mean, don't you want it? I do. I want everybody to think I'm awesome. I really do. I want people to think I'm great and, and loving and friendly, and they would never say a bad word about me or my family, and they would just say, everybody's great, and, and then you just hear the these smallest little comment, and all of a sudden, I'm consumed with what else are they saying? If that's what I'm overhearing, what are they saying when it's really behind my back? What do they really think about me? Because you know how people are to your face. Oh, hey, how you doing? It's so great to see you. And then you walk away and you're like, I hate that moron, right? <laughs> Nobody would say that about me ever. I just can't imagine. But we fear humiliation and disappointment and rejection. And we, we crave acceptance. We would even say that we need it. Like it's kind of built into us. You, you walk around and you, when you have a group of friends and everybody seems to like you, you just feel better. And when everybody, when they see you, they kind of avoid you, don't you just kind of feel inside like there's just this, this hint of depression? Sometimes that grows, doesn't it? There's a reason that depression is so epidemic in our culture. We have a criticizing culture. It doesn't matter what happens in politics. There's somebody on the other side who wants you politically dead. They will do anything they can to shame you or your family. They'll bring your kids into it. And don't think it ends with politics. It doesn't end there. And I've got people in this room, and I know that you would testify, because I know your life, I know what you've been through, and I know the people around you, and I know what they've done to you. And you know some of what's happened in my life. When we have this fear of man, we have this craving for acceptance, it kind of exhibits itself in, in certain symptoms. It could be concern for self-esteem for ourselves, that we're constantly sort of consumed with thinking about 
how I feel when my self-esteem is down. I've got to do something to build it back up. One of the things that I find myself doing when I feel like, wow, I'm not sure people around me like me, is I try to be extra like, happy around other people so that they like me. You know what I mean? I, I, don't want, I don't want everybody to kind of look at me the same way. So once I've made that mistake, I kind of go to other people. And I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get them to drum up good feelings about me because I'm concerned about my own self-esteem. It might, it might exhibit itself in a symptom of neediness. It's just that constant, I just need somebody to come and tell me I'm okay. And when somebody doesn't say you're okay, maybe when somebody comes and actually criticizes you because you're a mess and things really need, you, you need some correction, something like that, and now all of a sudden you just implode because you're so needy. Comparing ourselves to others. You're having issues, you need acceptance, what do you do? I, I, I remember growing up, there was always a certain kind of person who whenever things were not going their way, you just simply attack somebody else, even if it's just in your own head or even if it's just with your friends, so that you feel better about yourself. And so you're constantly criticizing others by comparing yourself to others. You always show yourself in your best light and you always show them how? In their worst light. You never are truly honest about yourself. Remember, what I've said here before, if you've not been here before, what I've said is, if you truly are honest about yourself, you're the worst person you know because you're the only one who really knows what's deep down in your heart, what wickedness is truly possible. You're the only one who really knows how close you've come to doing something really awful. You're the only one who really knows how deep the sin's roots have grown into your mind, into your heart, into your soul. If we have fear of people, we might just be very jealous. You see people who have something that you don't have, and it can, of course, move into all these other things, right, where you start complaining and comparing. And, or maybe you're just someone who can't say no. Your fear of others is, if I say no, they're not going to like me, so I'm just going to say yes to everything that comes by. It's so, it's so impossible. And even when you say no, it's a million apologies for three weeks. You ever had that happen? Maybe you're one of those people. Susceptibility to peer pressure. Just the same ideas, you know, you can't say no. But now sort of people kind of see it in you. And so now they're starting to add more pressure to you because they know you can be moved. They know you can be moved. Maybe if you have a fear of man, one of the symptoms is, is that you have the fear of being exposed. I think there's certain types of people who have the dream of like, I'm not wearing any clothes, I'm in a public space. <laughs> because there's something deep down, there's, some, there's something that we are so afraid, people are going to find that out. And so you have that fear of being exposed. Or maybe you're, maybe you're avoiding people. It's a much more simple one, right? Where you're just kind of like, well, if I just stay away, I can't hear bad things, I can't see how they act toward me, and so I'll just avoid people, and I'll just hope that everything's still okay. Maybe it just it, it comes in into depression, like we talked about. Maybe, maybe it exhibits itself in anger. How dare you not think that I'm better than this? I've, I faced this this week, where there was someone who I was trying to help understand that there was a lot of sort of bad vibes coming from lots of people in lots of places, and so I was trying to help my, um, it's not somebody here, um, I was trying to help them understand and and it just explosiveness, anger. How dare you? Because it's going to 
develop in them this phobia, this fear of man. Or maybe it's small lies just to look good to others. You do that? I want, I want to look good to others, so I'll kind of say good things, or I'll, every time I'm around someone, I'll tell some. It, it doesn't help your reputation to start your sermon with three stories about yourself looking like an idiot, right? I mean, it, it doesn't help, but I, I get it. I also know that if I tell the story good enough that you'll think that I'm maybe funny or humble because I could say it, and I might be doing it to try to get your approval. I have to know that about myself. I have to know that can be a symptom of my fear of man, my need, quote unquote, for acceptance, my craving that other people think I'm okay, that they would not disapprove me or reject me or that I would not be humiliated. To have the fear of man, to have the fear of man is to have the opinions of people have a lot of weight, to have a lot of weight. And when it carries a lot of weight, then it has a lot of impact. How many of you would like to go and, and take a big crane and put a wrecking ball on it that was like, you know, a lead thing that you put on a fishing line, right, to kind of hold the fishing line under the water? You say, I'm going to put that on the end of a crane, and I'm going to just wail on this building and knock it down. You're going to be there for a very long time because it's not much weight. It's a tiny weight. But when the opinions of others are very heavy, that's what the fear of man is, the weight of the words and opinions of others is very, very big. And so what we do is we do what we can to avoid the disapproval of others. We, we, we say things like, or we, we, we do things like saying to ourselves, I don't do that because I don't want them to disapprove of me. It's, a, it's kind of an internal conversation we're having. I'm not going to do that because the last thing I would want is for somebody to not be okay with who I am or what I'm doing. And to be honest, the approval that I fear the most is my own. I mean, be honest. You want to think that you're a great person, that you're a good person, that you're an acceptable person, that you're a loving person. I've never talked to somebody who is the most unloving person that I could find and, and found out that they thought that they were unloving. I haven't found that person. I haven't found a bitter person who thinks that they're bitter. I haven't found an angry person who thinks they're angry. It's, it's very rare, and it takes an incredible amount of humility that we cannot drum up in ourselves. We can't just make it up. And so what we do is we have these heavy, heavy views of the opinions of others. It carries a lot of weight, but we do the most weight with ourselves. And so it's my own approval. It's my own disapproval. That's what I'm most concerned about. When, when my understanding of myself is not okay, now I need to do something to make it better. You ever kind of kicked yourself? We always do this at the first of the year, right? Kind of like, oh, I'm not in good enough shape, or I'm not a whatever, and I want to learn how to cook a certain type of way, or I want to, I just don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I want to, and so there's got to be some kind of change, and we kind of, it's, it's, this, it's this fear of ourselves, when I say fear and I, and I say wait, you gotta, you just gotta, you gotta take that as a package because what I want you not to do is say, I'm not afraid of myself. Like you don't wake up in the morning going, I'm afraid I'm going to punch myself in the face. Some of you've done that. That's dumb. Stop it. But it's not, it's not that kind of fear. We have to be careful. We have to understand that fear as a weight. And here's, here's kind of how we can do that. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this, this idea of the fear of people or the fear of the opinions of people or the fear of the words or the acceptance or the disapproval of people, and I'm going to compare that now with God's. And what happens to us is, is we fear what other people think more than what we fear about what God thinks. And, and the word is glory. The word doxa the word for our church is the word glory. And it is often translated as glory and sometimes it's translated as praise. But then when you look at the idea of glory in the Old Testament, uh, especially you get to see it used a little more um, nuanced. And what you get is the idea of weight. It is when the, the glory of God, the beauty of God, the character of God, the, the, all, all of the characteristics of God, the way God is, the way God acts, all of those things carry weight. And when he is the weightiest being in the universe for you, you worship him. And when he is not the weightiest in the universe, you don't. When it's others, then you work for their approval and not for God's. When it's yourself, you work for your own approval and not for God's. And I know people who do absolutely nutty things in the world, but they say, I'm cool with myself. I'm happy with who I am. And I want to say that is the heart of sin. That is exactly what happens at the beginning of the Bible. When God creates people to reflect his image into the world, and they say, but you know what? Even though God says, here's the parameters of what it means to obey me, I've got a better idea. And we still do that today. We do it every day of our lives, and we have to fight against it. Because what happens when we put the, our opinion or the opinion of others heavier than God's, then we become God. We then have decided how the world will be organized. We decide who's going to be able to give us that approval or not, and then we live our lives for that approval. Some of you are still trying to make, this is a famous, line, a famous thing that comes from you know, half the movies that are out anymore. Everybody's trying to get the approval of their dad you know, who's passed away. You're still trying to make him happy. And, you know, a few good men. And Tom Cruise is a lawyer. And he settles all of his cases. Why? Instead of going to court. Because he's afraid that he's not going to live up to what his dad and his great reputation. He was this great lawyer. And it's just that, that movie thing comes through all the time. They're always living for the approval of someone. I could never make my dad happy. And so I've got to try to work harder and harder and harder to make him happy. Or the opinion, and, and a lot of parents are teaching kids this nowadays. You know what? I just want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. And so your goal in life is to go do everything that you can to make yourself happy. And what they mean is that you do what you want to do, and you don't care what anybody else says about it. So we try to get over the hump of the fear of people by doing things that are going to build us high enough that we have to only approve ourselves and then we've just continued to create a bigger and bigger mess. So we have the fear of man, or the fear of people, which is the weight and the opinions of others. And we defeat that by fearing God. How do you defeat the fear of people or the fear of, of ourselves? We do it by fearing God. We do it by seeing God as he truly is. And the word is glorious. And then we don't have to fear others. That's the thing you can sort of write down to take home and to meditate on and to think about again this week. God is glorious so that 
We do not have to fear others. God is so beautiful, so majestic, so unbelievable, indescribable. His beauty is so far beyond comparison to anything else that when we see him, everything else shrinks. What's the song that we sing in the, the lights, the light of the world? These lights will go strangely dim. What's the words? In the light of his glorious face, right? I mean, this is, when, when he's seen, everything else, when he's seen, everything else drops. When he is seen as awesome, everything else goes down. Now, there's two types of fear that we can have. There's probably more than that, but just in big categories now. The one kind is terror. The one kind is the fear of punishment, right? Where your kids are like, oh, I'm in trouble. I had one kid this week, I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Jack McCoy. Um, he, he, he's, he, it's, it's fine. Jack's like, it's not me, really, seriously. And uh, he had that moment where he looked at me, and I was so proud of him because he said it. And he looked at me and he said, I don't, I don't like the fact that I've disappointed you. I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of a profound statement. I was so proud the minute he said it. Where he just, I, I don't want you to fear me in terror, I want you to kind of have this respect for your dad and your dad's love for you that when I say something to you, that when something happens that's not quite right and he gets, you know, talked to or whatever happens, that he has a respect. And so the, the weight that comes from the fear of God is an, a respect. It's an awe. It's a, it's a looking at him and seeing his splendor and realizing that his beauty overcomes the, all the other lesser beauties, that his light overcomes all the other lesser lights. And so it's not just the fear that is the terror of God. That's what happens to people who are not Christians, truly Christians, those who are truly saved. Not somebody who was raised in a church and did a lot of religious stuff and went through all the steps of becoming a Christian or, or, or you know, followed all the particular things you know, or got, had all the rites done. To, to have the, the proper fear of God is to get to the point where we're so broken and so humble that our mouths are shut. And I so commonly talk to people who are right at that point where it's like, do they, do they know Jesus? Do they not know Jesus? And when I say something to them and they immediately respond with, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's like one day I was uh, in downtown Denver and there was a guy and he was like, he was like hey, Mr. 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 Can I, you know, can I have, can I have $5? Can I have $5? I just, just want to get some food. And I was like, Really? Looks like you want to get some speed, you know? I mean, it looks like you want to get some alcohol or whatever it was. And so I said, I was a very young Christian. I remember saying to him, um, you know, sir, do you, do you know Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus, I for my sins and I'm in the church. And blah, I was just like going on. I'll say whatever it takes for you to give me five bucks. That's basically what he was saying. <clears throat> when we truly understand the fear of God, the weight of God's glory, our mouths are shut. And we simply say, Christ, I don't have to go around trying to prove anything. I'm, I'm broken, I'm humble, and I am trusting in God through Christ. And for non-Christians, the judgment of God is coming. And there is a terror. And there should be, because the judgment of God is not strong as if it's too strong it is strong as if it's right we all want justice in the world nobody wants to see a murderer go free and so when somebody murders we want justice but for some reason with god we just want mercy 
we all deserve his justice, and we should want that. Because that shows he's good and perfect, and that shows we get what we deserve. And so there's the kind of non-Christian terror, the fear of God that is going to happen, if they don't have it now, that we are going to be judged. But for Christians, for those who truly know Christ, it should be a joy, an awe, a respect in his beauty and his splendor. We should have this weight of who God is and what God has done that is so clear to us. Let me just read a couple things quickly for you. Psalm 93, I'm going to read just verse 1. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. When you see God, what do you see? Is he buff? Is he tan? You know, what is God? God is not a man that we would look at him and see a man. But when we speak of God in human terms, we talk about how he's clothed. And it says he is clothed, he's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in He has put on strength as his belt. When we look at God, we see who he is. We see the way he is clothed in in, in the vision of God. And we see that he has got this splendor, this beauty. Let me read from you from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25. God says, to whom then will you compare me? He's not saying compare me to somebody else. He's saying, to whom could you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Are you going to really find someone that you're going to compare me to? He doesn't say it with sass. He says it because he is holy and perfect and right. So are you going to compare someone with the creator God? Are you going to compare a, compare a creature of God with God? Are you going to compare yourself with God? Are you really going to make the rules rather than following his? He's the one who made you. How can we be the ones who make the rules? So we look at God, we, we have this weight of who he is. He is incomparable to anyone else. He holds the most weight. Proverbs 29. And let me read for you verse 25. Now this is where we get the full comparison now. Between the fear of God and the fear of man. Okay? Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man lays a snare. Stop. The fear of man lays a snare. What's a snare? Not a drum. It's a trap, right? So the fear of man lays a trap. The minute you start fearing others or yourself, it is a trap that you're going to get caught in. It will get you nowhere. It will actually hold you back. It will actually kill you. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. To trust in the Lord is the place of safety. To fear man. And why would you trust in the Lord? Because you give him the greatest respect. You see him as the greatest, the one who's worthy of trusting, and the one who will keep us safe. And the one, if we don't trust, will not keep us safe. And therefore, he holds the greatest weight. He holds the greatest glory. So we need a big God. And we don't have to go and create him. We don't have to go write a new book. We don't have to find a new scripture. He has revealed himself to us. What we need is to truly see him as he is. What we need is to take the blinders off. We have uh, kids, you know, all of our kids now have their own sunglasses. You know, we finally found them cheap enough where you could actually buy them their own sunglasses. And for some reason, you know, kids, it's just like, hey, I got these shades. But they don't realize that there's also, it blocks vision from certain areas and stuff. They got kids on baseball fields. They got sunglasses on in order to help them to see. But the sun is behind them. The sun's not in their face. 
And I'm like, all you're doing is, is incumb- you're, you're halting vision by having it on when the sun's not there. You, you know, you gotta, that's when you take them off and put them on your hat. See, major leaguers, most of the time they got them on their hat unless the sun's at just that right point where you really are going to need it. And so we need to make sure we're not halting our vision of God and the way that we see God as a big God is to see him as he truly is. And so then that's why we go to scripture. And when you go to scripture and you see God in his most present state with humans, when you see him at his most present state with humans, what you see is God displayed as fire, burning bush, pillar of fire, leading God's people out of Egypt, leading them to uh, the Red Sea, and then, and then you know, leading them forward through the desert. You've got God seen as, it's called a Shekinah glory, with brilliance, it's burning light. In the beginning of scripture, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And then what does he create? <clears throat> the sun. At the end of scripture, it says there will be no more sun. So where's the light? In Revelation, it says God will be the light of the new Jerusalem forever. When we look at the sun, I just saw a news story this week where they're talking about these solar flares, right? These explosions are happening on the sun and they could disrupt our GPS and, and whatever else. And so they're talking about this. I know the sun's going to last for a long time, but the sun is going to burn out. It's, it is a matter of time. It is inevitable. There's only so much fuel. It's probably not going to happen in the next 20 minutes. You know, if it does, come over to my house. We'll have a barbecue. It'll be hot. It'll be warm. Um, be a little bit of light. But uh, the sun is, is going to stop. Just because it seems like a constant, it is not a constant. God is the constant. And so instead of God creating the sun for us as our greatest gift, he creates him, uh, uh, his own light. He, he emanates his own light. And our greatest gift is to know him and his glory and his splendor that is most found when he is seen by humans, he is seen in light. Which is why when we read from Mark chapter 9 of the transfiguration, Jesus is born into the world as a, as a man. God made flesh. We talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't have three gods. We have one God who is seen in three persons. And so when God sends his son to the world, he becomes born into the world as a, a, a baby, as a boy, and then he grows in, as a man, and he is fully human. But there is a moment in which he wants to show some of the nearest of his disciples who he really is. And so he takes a couple of disciples away, and he does the cocoon thing. Who's seen cocoon? Come on. Ron Howard. The one movie he made that, you know, you still want to watch. Well, he made Apollo 13. That was all right. So, so Jesus goes there and basically says, okay, here's what I really look like. And it says he was transfigured and he was so bright that he was whiter than anybody could bleach the clothes. You ever seen something really white? Nowadays, it's usually people's teeth because everybody's whitening their teeth, right? I'm going to start staining mine on purpose just to... Be countercultural. Um, what is that Sharpie for? <laughs> you know, um, when 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 we have when we have uh, when we have God seen at His most clear, His most brilliant, He is seen in Jesus, because not only is He bright, 
as God at the burning bush or God in the desert and, you know, the Shekinah glory of God or the pillar of fire or whatever else. <clears throat> Not only do we see God in these brilliant ways so that he's like, take the, the brightest fireworks you've ever seen and take it times one million and then take that times one million and then just keep doing it. And it's like, it's a brightness you can't describe that doesn't blind you unless you realize that you're a sinner and that you are going to be under the judgment of the one who stands before you in all of his splendor. And so when Jesus shows his disciples, and of course they don't know what to say, right? So they're like, yeah, Peter's like, oh, let's just pitch some tents, right? So you guys can all shine for a long time in your tents. Yeah, Jesus reveals himself as whiter than the whitest thing that could ever be bleached, and you're going to pitch him a tent. Congrats, that's dumb, okay? You know, Peter, Peter, Peter was a very important guy in the early church, but he did a lot of dumb things until Jesus was resurrected, am I right? And the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, the dude is confident, and he's speaking, and there's thousands of people coming to know Jesus. And so God, when he reveals himself and shows his glory, we can look at several different places in Scripture where he shows his glory, but the most clear way that God shows his glory is through Jesus. He shows Jesus as the most glorious. So let's look at just a couple of quick passages here. Ephesians 10. Ephesians 10. Ephesians 1. Ephesians only has six chapters. So when pastors of Ephesians 10, you all say, pastor is dumb. All right. Ephesians 1 and verse 10. <clears throat> I'll, I'll start reading verse 9. He's making known the mystery of his will. This is God making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, the plan is for the fullness of time. That in, in, the, in the pinnacle of all of time, to unite all things where? In Him. In Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. All things will be united in heaven and on earth in one person, and that is Christ. You want to see the glory of God, you see how God reveals Himself the most clearly, and that is through Christ. Colossians chapter 1, just a little bit later in the New Testament. <coughs> or you can just listen as I read. Starting in verse 15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible because he's not created. Jesus becomes visible because he be is born into the world. He is the God-man. So he is the image of the invisible God. Who was originally made as the image of the invisible God? We were. In the, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, it says we were created in the image of God. But now in Jesus, you have the Son of God. So he's, he's a, an image not just like us, but more than us, eternally more than us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. You can't say that about you. You were created. But by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things in him, all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. When he was resurrected from the dead, there's going to be many more resurrected, and those are all who fear God. That in everything he might be what? What's the word? Preeminent. He is above all. He is first and foremost. He is greatest, most pure and perfect and beautiful and wonderful for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is not just in the life of Jesus where he does not sin. It is not just that he is the image of God. It is that he died undeservingly so that you who don't deserve forgiveness get forgiven. The only way somebody who deserves God's wrath or God's judgment can be forgiven is if someone stands in your place who doesn't deserve it. And basically, it's what's called imputed righteousness, is that the righteousness of Christ is given to us so that now we are righteous even though we aren't righteous. God treats us as his son who is perfect, and he treated his son by having him die on the cross as the, the imperfect, as the sinner in our place. God's justice was done, is done in Christ. John 1.14. We're almost there. We're pulling into the stall. Just have another is going to finish. No, he's not. He's scratched. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. Horse racing, Belmont Stakes. Okay. John 1. I said John 1, right? Probably said John 14, knowing how I've been going today. John 1. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? So the Word here is Logos, and the word Logos is there to, to be. It's, it's the mind of God. It is, it is his, it's not just the knowledge of God, but it is truly his mind. And therefore, when we say the word, it says he, uh, um, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John is obviously talking about a person and that he is Jesus. Okay. Then you go down to verse 14 and it says this. And the word, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. How, if you want to see God's glory, this is what you don't do. You don't say, well, you know what? I'm going to believe in God when he shows himself to me. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe that he's there. God has shown himself in Christ. All the evidence is there. This isn't some made up thing. This is history. This is truth. It has been true for 2,000 years. There were dozens and dozens, even hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses to these things, and not only to his death, but to his resurrection from the dead, that there is no body, there has never been found a body, there never will be found a body, because it was raised again from the dead, and it was made glorious, and then he teaches his disciples, ascended to the right hand of God, and now rules and reigns as the king of the universe, and for any of us who go, well, scientifically, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because you are God. And you determine what's right and wrong, and you determine what's true and not. You've determined that only the things that we can prove in laboratories, or only the things that we can convince in philosophy, or only those kinds of things are what we can believe. Why not believe what God has shown, what God has done, when we know and see the evidence that he has actually done it? He has been made flesh. He dwelt among us, and when he dwells among his people, when Jesus comes, it reveals the glory of God. The glory of God has been seen and has been known through Jesus. So what we need to do is behold the face of Jesus. We don't do it by actually looking into his face. He's not here, right? I can't just show you the face of Jesus. Blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, well-shaven face, no, no five o'clock shadow. That would be weird. We don't, we don't talk about Jesus that way. We say, behold the face of Jesus. We're saying, we know who he truly is and we know what he has truly done. 
And in the Bible it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 it says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It can't be the Buddha, and you can't be going to do meditation, it can't be Islam, it's not the prophet Muhammad or whatever else. It's not, you can't just go out and find some other philosophy or some other guru. There is one name, period. It is God's son. His name is Jesus. And he, and by his name, we don't go proclaiming ourselves. I'm not going and preaching to you because I've somehow achieved anything in myself. I have some um, amazing wisdom. I've just gone through so much school. I've read so many books. I'm, I'm so holy and I live my life so right. I come preaching to you as one beggar who had nothing and can achieve nothing. It has all been achieved in and through Christ, and there is no other name by which I could be saved. I don't have to go and work for my salvation. I give up. Because God is glorious, and his glory is seen and is shown and has been expressed and has been shown. He, he has given it to us. He's given us the brightness. The greatest brightness has been found in Christ. Not just the transfiguration where he like shows his brightness, but because Jesus says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light. He says a lot of other things too, right? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I mean, you got all these ways of explaining who he is. But when we talk about the glory of God, we usually talk about his light, somehow that he emanates something that we see. And that what we see the best is not just the transfiguration where he shows his light, but that when he is the light. And when he is the light, he shows us what next step to take when we're living in the darkness. And the next step to take is not to try to achieve anything and to make God happy by your own good works because you cannot. The next thing you do is give up and follow the light that he shines before you. Matthew chapter 10. I'll start in verse 26. Jesus says, so have no fear for them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Meaning Jesus will reveal all things. In his life, it has not all yet been revealed what he is going to fully accomplish. It's been, it's been spoken of. It's been pointed to. He's made clear reference to those things. But it has not fully happened yet. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who do we fear? Satan? Can Satan destroy the body and soul in hell? Satan is the one who is destroyed in hell with those who do not know God through Christ. The one who we fear is the one who made us, who has the rights over us. Just as we with parents with our children have the responsibility of caring for our children, so God has responsibility of caring for us, and we have rebelled against him, yet he, through his love, has sent his son to die for us, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could have life, so that we could have his light to lead us, so that we could have the weight of his glory, so that everyone else's opinions, including our own, are pushed aside so that everybody else's opinions don't carry the same amount of weight. 
And don't get me wrong, you don't go to work tomorrow and say to your boss, your opinion no longer carries any weight with me. <laughs> this isn't, we're not trying to be silly. We take people's expectations seriously. And we do have a certain kind of borrowed weight that people carry because they do have authority in our life in certain ways. You don't just say to the police officer, sorry, you can't tell me what to do. Okay, I mean, there's a, there's a certain type of weight those do hold, and God put that weight there. Remember that. God put that weight in with them and with us, with each other. God gives, for children, God gives your parents weight, more weight than everybody else, and should. You should be listening to your parents more than everybody else. So we take people's expectations seriously. We don't just say nobody's opinion matters, but what we do is we allow the, the approval of others to have a lesser weight than God's approval. We put it in its right perspective. Having faith in God regulates how we view the opinions of others. It doesn't mean we don't care anymore. It means that it's regulated by God. And so I'll just end this way. Here's what you do when you fear men. Here's what you do when you fear your boss when you have an improper kind of need for approval, is you take that person, you, you, you take that coworker, you take that family member, and you set them next to the burning bush where when Moses shows up, he is in terror and his shoes, you know, come flying off because he's on holy ground and the bush is burning yet it's not consumed. When Moses goes up on the mountain, he comes back down. He's wearing the veil because his face is glowing because he's been in the presence of God. When, when you have that fear, when there's somebody in your life who has a controlling power over you because of your, your giving respect in an improper way to someone else around you, put it in perspective and see God as he really is in comparison to that person. And you'll find out God comes out on top. He comes out big and glorious and beautiful. And then you begin to praise and worship and give him awe and reverence and respect. And now you cannot yet but not but speak of how great he is and tell the world I've given myself to him. And he alone carries the biggest weight in my life. So who should we listen to? This is what the apostles say, right? We're going to beat you and kill you. If you keep speaking the name of Jesus, you keep going and preaching his name. And they responded back to the authorities, the ones who carried great weight in the culture who could kill them. And they said, you tell us who we should obey, you or God? Who will you obey? Who will have the greatest weight in your life? Stand with me for closing prayer. Ask yourself this question before we pray. What lie am I believing about God and his glory? What lie am I believing about God and his glory? Am I believing he's not really that glorious? Am I believing that other people carry a greater weight? Am I believing that obeying the police or the government or my parents is actually more important than obeying God? What lie are you believing about God? 
And then how can you put your faith, how can you put your faith in him? If you do not know Christ as Savior, you do not have to read some books and go through long classes, or you don't have to go and speak with me as the pastor because I have some special honorary place with God in which I can just sort of, you know, cross you or throw some holy water on you or whatever. You can right now, where you are, repent of your sins, your rebellion, the way you've disobeyed God. Just repent. Ask God for his forgiveness. And then put all your faith in Christ, what he's done on the cross, and know that it was for you. And now, give him all that weight. Leave none for yourself. Leave none for those around you other than what he tells you to give. And trust in him fully in what he's done for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He puts all of this into perspective. You've revealed yourself to us through him most clearly as he is so glorious, as he is worthy of our respect and our awe, as he not only truly is seen as light, but he is the light of the world, and we want everyone in this room, and we want those around us in our cities and neighborhoods to know that there is a light in the middle of darkness, whether that darkness is depression or whether it's fear or whether it's giving the respect to the wrong people or whether it's some disease, something in our lives, some, something we think is going to happen, the way people are treating us or the way that we feel like we need the approval of others. Help us to see the light of Christ. And help us to know not that we see it as shining brighter than the other lights of the world, but that we know that whether we see it or not, it shines brighter than all the rest of the lights of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Cook out. <laughs>